All right, well, now we're going to transition our time uh, to our teaching time, and I'll invite Genesee to come on up, and you can open your Bible, said John chapter 12. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Thanks, Genesee. So as we're heading toward Easter next week, uh, celebration of the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead, well, we were just basically looking at resurrection and the way that it changes everything. So last week we looked at resurrection and relationships. Uh, on next Friday, a good Friday, we'll look at how resurrection uh, changes death. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about how resurrection literally changes all of the creation. But today uh, is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the day in the church calendar where every year we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he's being hailed by the crowds, he's being adored by the crowds, he's being praised by the crowds, and he's making a claim to be king. And we'll see that in a minute. And so we're going to look at this idea of how the resurrection changes our relationship to power. But before we do anything else, I wonder if you'd just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together here today. God, we thank you that uh, you are with us. You are present with us. You are not far off and distant. You are not, uh, you've not left us alone. You've not left us as orphans, but God, you are with us. Uh, I ask and pray today, God, that you would um, help us to be honest with ourselves about where we are um, in our journey with you. God, I pray you would um, guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, I ask and pray that you would give each of us uh, soft hearts, teachable hearts, hearts to be changed and transformed to be closer to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right, I want you just to imagine for a moment that we're, we're here, we're having this, this worship gathering, and then all of a sudden, like out in the parking lot, we start to hear noise. Like we hear really loud music, like subwoofer loud music. It's thumping, it's, it's a party. And then all of a sudden you hear like, like people chanting and people cheering and like there's, there's crowds and you're like, what in the world is, is happening? And so, you know, so Andrew stands up and says, hey, everybody, let's all go out. Let's all go out and see what's going on. And so we, we file out, we walk out in the, the hallway, we go out to the parking lot and we get out to the parking lot. We can hear the crowds, we can hear the music going. And then all of a sudden we see there's like this big blue truck and it's got like a bird head thing on the side of it. And standing on top of the truck is Arthur. And Arthur's just standing there and we're we're like, we're like lined up people on both sides and he's wearing like a, like a, like a stocking cap with one of those like little pom-pom ball things on top of it. And then he starts like throwing Skittles at people and you think to yourself, oh, I know what he's doing. He's channeling who? Marshawn Lynch. That's right. Who is going to unretire and not play for the Seahawks, by the way. Ah, sad. We have in our culture 
this, this thing where if you, if you were to walk out and see a dude just throwing Skittles at somebody, as bizarre as that sounds, most all of us, any of you who pay attention to football, you would know that we're talking about Marshawn Lynch. It's a weird cultural thing. It's a weird cultural phenomenon. And it relates to Palm Sunday. And you're all thinking, how in the heck does this relate to Palm Sunday? On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem with a lot of fanfare. And there are some very specific acts. You almost could use the language performance art. There's some specific acts that Jesus is doing that are intentionally meant to call to mind certain things in their culture, things that we can read about in the scriptures and things in the culture of uh, Israel around that, that time. So when we see that Jesus, remember our, our passage was reading, we saw that one of the things is that Jesus was riding on a donkey. He's riding on a donkey. Um, and, and, and the author, John, he actually points out that that is meant intentionally to call to mind the words of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 9.9, 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By the way, I want to point out, in this time, in this area of the world, kings do not ride on donkeys. If you remember a few weeks ago in the book of Judges, we kept talking about like Jair, the donkey guy. That time of the world, kings rode on donkeys. But you fast forward about, you know, a thousand plus years to the time of Jesus. Now, kings ride on big horses. Kings do not ride on little baby donkeys. And if they do, it's because they're intentionally trying to call to mind the words of Zechariah 9.9. So Jesus, his actions here are meant to call to mind something. The crowds, they're, they're shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's a, it's a, it's a plea, it's a cry. The, the na at the end is actually the Hebrew word for please. It means please save us. We cry out, help us, help us please. It's meant to call to mind the words of Psalm uh, 118 where it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then listen to what it says. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's this one who's going to come in the name of the Lord. There's this Messiah, this anointed one, this king. The people start crying out, Hosanna. They're, they're shouting out this, this very loaded phrase. This is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. And then to make it really obvious, there's the palm branches. The palm branches, if, if you read uh, in the book of Maccabees, the book of Maccabees is, is what's known as uh, one of the apocryphal books. It's not a, a, a book of the Bible. It, it was written in between the Old and the New Testaments. But in the book of Maccabees, you read the story about a guy uh, named Judah Maccabees who uh, Israel was always being taken over by somebody and they'd been taken over by the Syrians and nobody could get them out and nobody could conquer them. But this guy Judah, Judah Maccabees, Judah the Hammer, we got kids in our, in our children's ministry named Judah. I think Judah the Hammer is, a, is a, just a killer nickname. Unless they're in our community group, then you need to be scared. But Judah the Hammer, he raises an army and they, they beat back the Syrians. And you guys, you probably heard of the story of Hanukkah where the, the, the oil for the lamp kept miraculously burning for, for eight days and all of that. That's where that comes from. And it says in, in 1 Maccabees 13 that when Judah had, had wiped out the, the invading army, pushed them back, they all went out and they were waving palm branches. And that's their way of saying like, hail to the king. Again, 
We might think that that's a little bit of a strange ritual, but in their culture, it was meaningful. And who are we to throw stones when we're tossing Skittles out in downtown Seattle? These little actions individually all add up to a picture where Jesus is saying loudly and clearly, I am the king. He's allowing the people to praise and celebrate him as the king. He himself is participating by riding on a donkey. This is a power claim. What's really interesting is that, um, I don't want to overstate this. We can can overemphasize it, but it is interesting to me that on Sunday, the crowds are chanting and, 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 you know, hail to the king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And five days later, Jesus is standing before a different crowd, a different mob, and they're shouting, crucify him. And you have to think, what what happened in those five days? Just five days. Some of you can think about what you're going to be doing this next Friday. Come into a good Friday service, or you're going to work, or traveling, or whatever you may be doing. What would happen so much in five days that that on Sunday, the, the crowd is praising him as the king, and then on Friday, they're shouting, crucify him. One of the things I think that's happening here is that Jesus is claiming to be king, but he doesn't look like the type of king that people were expecting or wanting. It even says it right there in our text, John 12, his, in, uh, verse 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But after he was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. They didn't get it at first. It's Jesus making a claim to power, but it doesn't look like the kind of power that they were hoping for or expecting. And so here's the big idea of, of what we're looking at. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. That's what we've been saying each week. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything, including our relationship with power. Including our relationship with power. And my hope is actually to be practical today. I want to walk you through some practical things because I am more convinced than ever that you and I are trafficking in what we could call power dynamics all day, every day, and we don't often realize it, and we very often approach power the way the world approaches power instead of the way that the resurrection compels us to approach power. I was thinking about this yesterday. I I, um, got up in the morning with my kids. We're going to watch some cartoons, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, just trying to be a good dad. I was up first, and I turned on the cartoons before they even got up because... You know, I like cartoons, okay? And, and there was a nature documentary that we were watching. And so we st- we're starting with, you know, like some BBC Planet Earth one. I don't remember exactly which one it was. And they were talking about the struggle for power within this community of chimpanzees. And there's like all these chimpanzees, but there's this one clique of chimpanzee bros. Like if you're, if you're like cool, you get invited to this chimpanzee clique, which I think is a good name for a band. But this, this group of chimpanzees, then there's this young male and he's like trying to break into the chimpanzee clique. And he's like trying to assert himself and he starts doing this thing. He's like hitting the tree. And then all the other chimpanzees come over and just beat the snot out of him. And it was really sad. And I'm like, this is terrible. And then we, after that, we, you know, we turned off the cartoons and the kids went to start playing and I watched it happen with my own children for the rest of the entire day. I was like, oh, 
It's just a clique of chimpanzees running around and they're fighting about who's in charge of this game and who got to use the trampoline first or I was using this jump rope and they're fighting with each other and it just made me realize that in some ways we are all just chimpanzees fighting over the best access to the best bananas, right? As we get older, we might get a little bit more subtle or a little bit more sophisticated with it, but we are, in our sinful hearts, grasping for power all the time and using whatever means we can to grab that power, to use it for our own betterment. And so I want to, like I said, I want to be practical. I want to be immensely practical today as we talk about this idea of power. And so I want to I make three really simple points. The first point is power is a good thing. The second point is you have a lot of power. And the third point is the resurrection means we use power different than the world. Okay. Power is a good thing, you have power, and the difference between worldly and resurrection power. First point is this. Power is a good thing. Now, already I might encounter some resistance from some of you. We have this saying in our culture that says, power does what? Corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Um, power is, is, it is a, well, it's a powerful force, but similar to fire, it can be used for good or it can be used for harm. If, if, somebody, if somebody came up to you and just said, fire destroys, you'd say, well, it, it can. When used improperly, fire can destroy. But when used properly, it can cook bratwursts. And that's amazing, right? <laughs> Roast a marshmallow. Fire in and of itself, it's a powerful thing. And yes, it does have the potential to destroy, but it doesn't have to. You and I, we've all lived in the era where, where um, politics, you know, our politicians, our government, churches, police, institutions, things that we're supposed to be able to look up to and to trust, over and over and over and over and over again, at least in the last five or six decades, we have seen widespread abuse of power, have we not? I mean, you know, you're going back to about the time of probably the, the, the Richard Nixon resignation, but... From that time period, really from that time period on, we have just seen government corruption. We've seen politicians you know, buying elections. We've seen uh, pastors and ministry leaders using their positions of power to, to um, take advantage of people. We, we, we know that power can corrupt. And, and overall, we're, we're a little jaded. We're a little cynical. We're a little suspicious of power. But I want to remind you that what the Bible says is that power is actually one of the attributes of God. Power is not in and of itself evil because power is one of the attributes of God. You can look at verses like Jeremiah 32, 17, where it says, Lord God, it's you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too difficult for you. Or you can look in Psalm 21, where the psalmist writes, Lord God, be exalted in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Just a minute ago in, in the song, Be Thou My Vision, there's a verse, you know, Power of my power. We're praising God for his strength, his power. Or Romans 1.20, where it says, I'll paraphrase here, but he says, look, everybody can see what God is like by looking at nature. Specifically, the Apostle Paul says, specifically, we can see his power. If you look at nature, you, you, you might not know, you might, you might, it's a little harder to see God's mercy in nature. I'm not saying it's not there, but it, it's, it's, it's a little bit more hidden, or you might not see his, his, um, his tenderness or different other attributes of God. But the one thing you should see in nature is God's power. 
I don't know where I first heard it. I picked it up, but I, I love it. it. The saying, you know, nobody goes to the edge of the Grand Canyon, looks over it and says, wow, I am amazing. <laughs> right? You, you go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you're, you're taken aback, you catch your breath. When you, when you come into contact with the awesome nature of God's creation, his power is on display. Or if you can get out away from the city lights and, and be up in the middle of the night when you just see like all the stars and the galaxies and just the immensity of space. I remember I, um, I was really excited one time to take my parents to see Snoqualmie Falls, this big water. Anybody ever been to Snoqualmie Falls? You see the, this, this big, powerful waterfall, and, and I was just amazed. I'm ready. To, my parents were visiting from out of town, and I took them there, but I forgot that it was August, and it hadn't rained in like two months, and we got there, and it was like a trickle, like someone had left the faucet on. I'm like, this is pathetic. And my dad's like, your waterfalls are terrible. And then I, like, in October, it was like just torrential downpour. And so I'm like texting him all these videos of like, no, see dad, our waterfall is huge and awesome. And you should be amazed as you watch it on your three and a half iPhone, in, you know, three and a half inch iPhone screen. Still doesn't believe me to this day. You get to see these, these, these characteristics of God on display, specifically his power in nature. God is, we use the, we use the term omnipotent, omnipotent. He is all powerful. There's nothing our God cannot do. He holds all power in the universe. And actually, even specifically, you can see Jesus having power here. Jesus has power here on Palm Sunday. Think about it. Jesus has spiritual power. It says in verse 17 that the reason this crowd was following him, why? Because he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. I don't know about you, That's not on my resume, okay? I can barely raise my children from the sleep in the morning to get them up for school. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He has incredible spiritual power. We see here that Jesus has incredible cultural power as well. The donkey, and they're, they're throwing down palm branches, and he's making all these references. He's he's got cultural power. He's got cultural um, clout, if you will. And then even just on a popular level, he just has popular level. He has a big crowd following him. I love it in in verse, uh, what is it? Verse 19, where the Pharisees, they're talking to each other and the Pharisees are kind of grumbling and they say, they say, look at, look at this. What a waste of time. The whole world has gone after him. The whole world is following after Jesus. We can't, we can't even get the people to follow us anymore. They've all lost their minds. A bunch of sheeple, you know, following Jesus. Here's the thing. I want us to wade into, we we need to wade into the biblical tension here because Jesus is definitely exercising power here. But Jesus' power looks different than the world's power. And the Bible does talk a lot about Jesus and his humility. Even right here in our passage, it talks about him humble and and seated on a donkey. And so sometimes people can, can maybe swing the pendulum too far to say, well, Jesus gave up all of his power and he, he had no power. Actually, sometimes people would even point to a passage in Philippians chapter two that talks about Jesus emptying himself to say that he gave up all of his divine power and that Jesus had no divine power and he only lived as a human. Um, friends, that's, that's outside of the, the range. That's outside of the tension of what the Bible speaks about Jesus giving up his power access or his usage of power at times or his, his prerogative or his privilege to take on the nature of a slave. But it says he still existed in the form of God. 
He still existed in the form of God. Read that, read that passage in Philippians. Think about when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. The Bible clearly says that God is the one who controls the wind and the waves. The disciples did what after he did that? They worshiped him. Or when Jesus walked on the water, the book of Job says that God tramples upon the waves of the sea. So Jesus is making a claim to divinity. Or think about Jesus' transfiguration. He goes up on the mountain with with, uh, Peter, James, and John, and they're watching, and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up, and Jesus is shining in glory. They get to see his full divinity. Jesus did not stop being God, but he gave up a certain privilege. He gave up certain rights to identify with us in our powerlessness. Just quick show of hands. Anybody ever felt powerless? Anybody ever just been in a situation, your work, your family, your neighborhood, the world? Jesus can identify because he took on the nature, the form, I should say, of a slave. One Bible scholar, Walter Hansen, puts it this way. He says, the form of a slave is the exact opposite of glory. A slave does not have a high position, unlimited power, or unrivaled sovereignty. A slave has the lowest position. He is powerless. He has no rights. He has no glory, no honor, only shame. This contrast, he's talking about that passage in Philippians, this contrast points to the extent of Christ's self-emptying. Since slavery in the world of Paul and his readers was the extreme in respect of the deprivation of rights, The hymn, that Philippians 2 hymn, tells us that Christ deprived himself of his divine rights when he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Although Christ did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave, so he still exists in power, he gave up the appearance of his divinity when he took the form of a slave. While still existing in the form of God, he experienced all the powerlessness and poverty of a slave. So think about that. Jesus can identify with you at times when you felt powerless. He can relate. But we have to hold it in tension with the fact that he still has power. It didn't happen, and I don't necessarily, you know, think that Jesus wouldn't have done anything that was outside of the plan or the will of God. But had Jesus said to that crowd in that moment, they're all chanting, they're all cheering, they're all waving palm branches, and Jesus said, all right, now let's go storm the temple and let's go get rid of that Pontius Pilate. Let's go kill him. Do you think the crowds would have followed him? Do you think they would have done it? I think so. He could have used his power the way that the world uses power. There's a whole crowd right there. They're all waving palm branches. They all think he's the one that was promised in the Old Testament, the one who's going to come, the Messiah, the rescuer, the king. But Jesus uses power differently. Second thing, I just, I want you to see that power in and of itself is not a bad thing because God has power and Jesus still has power in this moment. The second thing I want to point out to you though is that you have power. Do you know that? You have a tremendous amount of power. I know you may not feel like it, Certain days, certain situations, but you have an amazing amount of power. Think about this. Genesis 1, 27 says we are created in the image and likeness of God. In our culture, we might say it's like, you know, like a chip off the old block. You are like your heavenly father in some ways. Now, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And you are some-potent. <laughs> some-powerful. You have an amazing ability to bring change in the world, for better or for worse. You have an amazing ability to influence others. Do you know that you can actually make or ruin someone's day? You could do that today if you so desired, just by the power and the influence that you have. Psalm chapter 8 
talks about how God created us and he crowned us with dignity and with glory. Psalm 8 says that he made us just a little bit lower than the angels. Just a little bit lower than the angels. Crowned with with glory. That word glory means like weight or heaviness or gravitas, if you will. And get this, in 1 Corinthians 6, even though we're created a little bit lower than the angels, the apostle Paul tells us that we are going to judge angels. Those of you who are Christians, who've placed your faith in Jesus, at the end of the age, you're going to judge angels. Now, Paul doesn't explain a whole lot about what that looks like or what that means. I don't know a whole lot about what that means. I don't feel particularly prepared for it if that happened tomorrow, but it's in the word of God and I believe that it's true. So we're going to judge the angels. How about that? Think about that responsibility. Think about that weight. Think about that power. You have an amazing amount of power. Let me, let me, let me, let me get pr- intensely practical with you for a minute. Think about all the different places where we wield power, okay? Just starting with your interpersonal relationships, okay? Quick show of hands. How many of you in here are parents, okay? You have a lot of power, do you not? You have a lot of power, decisions that you make, choices that you make that affect their lives. Actually, what's funny, your children have a pretty good amount of power too, don't they? You ever been in a store and your child decides that you are going to leave that store and they do certain things to make sure that you leave that store? Yeah, it happens. Those of you who are in a marriage relationship, there's power dynamics at play. You're better at one thing and they're better at another thing. Those of you who are just in friendships, you know, who's going to make the decision? What movie are we going to see? What restaurant are we going to go to? Where are we going to hang out? There's all sorts of power dynamics at play there. How many of you um, work? How many of you have a job? Okay. How many of you have a boss? Raise your hand if you have a boss. Okay. It's a most good number of you. How many of you are a manager or a boss or in some position of authority? Okay. You've got power. You make decisions that affect other people's lives. You could potentially, depending on how much power you have, you can make decisions that could get someone fired. You could make a bad business decision that sinks the company. I mean, maybe if you work at a small enough company or maybe if you work at a big enough company, you whistleblower, you bring the whole thing down. You have a lot of power. Church, not all of you are pastors or elders, but Many of you are members, many of you lead a community group or you lead a band, or maybe you're just relationally really well connected. You're one of those people that that people just come to for advice or for prayer. You have power. You have have power in the church. Well, politics. Probably we all have less power than we wish we did, right? Uh, but some of you might, you know, might serve on a city council. Some of you might consider running for mayor. Some of you are involved in, in government in different ways. Even, even something simple like the, the PTA or whatever. You have ways that you can exert and influence uh, power. Education. Do we have any teachers here today? How many of you are teachers? Okay. And I know all you teachers are like, man, I wish I had so much more power than I do. <laughs> Especially like Friday afternoon around 2.30, right? Just, this is an absolutely true story. In 10th grade, my uh, math teacher duct taped me to a chair. I don't feel like it was deserved at all. I, you guys know me pretty well. Do you, I seem like the kind of person that needed to be duct taped to a chair. Actually, I, he duct taped my mouth shut too. I don't, again, I don't know why. Uh, but education, you have an incredible amount of power to shape and to, to, to mold and to form young minds. And there's power dynamics with administration and teachers and unions and all those sorts of things. The arts, think about this. Some of you are songwriters or um, poets, or you do graphic design or visual arts, think about how much power the arts have. 
Okay, be honest. Raise your hand if you've ever cried at a movie. It's not real. (laughs) It's an actor being paid an obscene amount of money to manipulate your emotions. But it's powerful, is it not? Some people watch a movie or they hear a song or maybe, you know, they see a a painting or a piece of artwork and then they make decisions to go do things with their lives just because of the influence of the arts. Let me get really practical with you. The service industry. Okay, one more, one more show of hands. How many of you went to a coffee shop this week and purchased coffee? Do you realize the power dynamics that are at work in the service industry? My wife and I, we went on a date night last night, and a, a servant walked up to our table, and he took my order. Order. This is what I'm ordering you to get me. Just think about the language we're using. This servant walks back behind closed doors where a whole other team of servants is busy preparing my meal and then they come out and they serve it to me on a platter and then they knelt before me. No, they didn't really. But, <laughs> but, but think about that experience. Just the experience of going out to eat. In the majority of world history, in the majority of human history, if you go out to eat and have someone serving you, you just experience something that in the history of the world, usually only royalty got to experience. We are all kings and queens by the standard of the world. Think about how we wield power. Again, I want this, I'm I'm belaboring this point because I want to invite you into this idea that you and I are trafficking in power every week, every day, all day. Think about how we wield power. Knowledge. Knowledge is power, right? Isn't that a saying? So to keep with the service industry uh, idea for a minute, I have to get my car fixed tomorrow, so I'm going to take my car to a mechanic. He has knowledge about my car that I don't have, nor do I want to have. He has fluency in things that I, I just, I have come to the realization, I hate cars. They always break. They never work right. And you have to pay way too much money to get them fixed. And so I just take it to some man and he has power over me because he's going to tell me some things that I don't know if I can actually verify. And I have to trust that he's not taking me to the cleaners, Right? He's also got resources, doesn't he? He's got tools. He's got gizmos. I don't know what mechanics have. They have things. And they have, they have resources that they got from Hogwarts or wherever they went to learn about cars. And, and he's got these, these resources. But I, now, now here's where my power comes in. I have resources because I have money. I have some money. And I can pay him that money for him to use his resources and his knowledge. And I have to decide how much money I want to pay for which thing. I mean, just think about it, right? And then he's got words. He can start talking and he can tell me about this part of the car and this gasket and this flash whacket and this whatever thing. And I don't know if that's real or not, but then I've got words too, because I can negotiate. I'm a preacher after all. I talk a lot and I can, I can talk to him and I can negotiate and we can get into this power play. Just my presence, I can, I can, I can, you know, I can stand tall. I can go at the, you know, I can try to be humble. Like, oh, you know, or like, um, um, you know, if any of you ladies have ever used, like, I'm just a helpless lady and I don't know anything about cars. You can use that presence, right, to get the mechanics to have sympathy on you. And don't lie, you know you've done it, okay? <laughs> Think about all the ways that we use just all these aspects of who we are. Think about this, actions, right? I don't like the service I received. I am going to get on Yelp and I'm going to leave a bad review. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Power to the people, right? (laughs) I had a conversation with the business owner last year. 
who he moved his business into location and the location used to be a liquor store and it was not a liquor store anymore. And someone came in to buy wine and they were really mad that it wasn't a liquor store and they went and left a bad review on Yelp for the current business because it's not a liquor store anymore. (laughs) Man, somebody's having a bad day, okay? Just think about the ways that we wield power. That person actually went and wielded some form of power by leaving a bad Yelp review. Okay, here's the deal, friends. All of this power has connected to it a moral component. Because we can either use our power for God's purposes, or we can use the power that we've been given, very often we do, for our own selfish purposes. And I would submit to you that there is not a single person in this room right now who used their power and their authority and their influence purely in a God-honoring way this week. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? I would submit to you that in some way, shape, or form, we have all used the power that God has given to us for evil. There's a book, a recent book, called um, The Way of the Lamb or The Way of the Dragon. Very helpful book, really helpful book. I'll, I'll link to it up on the church's website. One of the authors, Jamin Goggin, he, he says this, We human beings have the capacity to physically, emotionally, and spiritually influence the world around us. We do, don't we? God has given us this capacity for good, to glorify him, and to bless the world. But because of our sin, our ability to use power is disordered and is damaging the world around us. Friends, can you just acknowledge that you have in some way, shape, or form damaged the world around you through your use of power in the last week? Just as Adam and Eve grasped for power apart from God, so do we. Just as Cain wielded his power to destroy his perceived competition, so do we. A way of power exists that is good, true, and beautiful, but there is also a way of power that is evil, false, and ugly. After the fall, two ways of power are always before us. Even those of us who are followers of Jesus will be tempted to embrace that sinful way of power rather than the way of power embodied on the cross. I love that line, the power embodied on the cross. We may happily receive the news, the good news of Jesus' cross, but we often shy away from his call to pick up our own. Friends, we have to be honest. We have to be honest with ourselves in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods. We love power in a way that's not healthy. It's not right. It's not God-honoring. It's not as God intended. God created us to have power, but because of our sinfulness, that desire is so often self-focused. I can even just admit to you guys, like in my parenting, I want to exercise my power over my kids so that I can have peace and quiet in my house. Not so that I can shape them and train them and and see them flourish. I I just want it to be quiet and I want there to be no messes. Can I get an amen from the church, right? And then, well, there's, there's nothing wrong with having some sense of order, but when my motive is for my own self-interest, my own good instead of for theirs, 
when I'm falling short of God's intended use of power. Am I not? Let's go back to John 12, and let's look at Jesus' resurrection power. Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written from Zechariah, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. That is a resurrection to after he was crucified, he rose again. After he was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Friends, think about this. Palm Sunday, this big display of power, all of this pomp, all of this branch waving. Why is Jesus in Jerusalem in the first place? Why is he there? To die on a cross. He has been telling his disciples for weeks, maybe months, that he needs to go to Jerusalem, that he needs to go before the authorities. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the authorities. The Son of Man must be crucified. And Peter goes up to him and says, No, Lord, you'll you'll never die for us. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Get behind me, Satan. Don't you try to keep me from doing what God sent me here to do. That Jesus is marching into Jerusalem with all of this display of power for the express purpose of dying on the cross. To pay the price for our disordered, selfish use of power. The one who holds all power, the one who the author of Hebrews says upholds the universe by the word of his power is going to become obedient to death even on a cross. Think about that. Think about Jesus' use of power. Jesus had unlimited power. And the Bible tells us that he used that power to save his enemies, people who hated him. I would submit to you that if you and I had the power that Jesus has, we would not use it to save our enemies. But Jesus did. Jesus said that he offers forgiveness. He offers forgiveness. Even though we've grasped for power, even though we've tried to take God's power out of his hands, we've made these kind of pathetic power plays that that we actually deserve judgment. We deserve to be cast away from God. Jesus said, no, I'm offering forgiveness. I'm offering redemption. I'm offering healing. I'm offering the Holy Spirit. I'm offering to transform you out of the type of people who use power for your own self-interest into the type of people who more and more use power for God's glory and for the good of others. And friends, how do we know that this is true? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. The most audacious act of power in the history of the world, God raised Jesus back to life. It means that all of his claims are true. Think about this. I mean, in the history of of the world, every other world religion, every other system of belief, every other philosophy has a founder, a religious founder, a teacher who tells us some things about God. Maybe they live a good life and then they die. But we Christians are the only ones crazy enough to believe for 2,000 years that our founder is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. God demonstrated absolute power in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And even still in that, 
He raised Jesus to new life that you and I could be raised to new life. Isn't that amazing? You just, you just kind of keep expecting at some point, if it was just a normal person or if it was one of the pagan gods, at some point in the story, it's so that Jesus could just wipe out all of his enemies. No, it's so that Jesus could redeem his enemies. So that he could love people who have grasped for power that didn't belong to them. Here's what the resurrection means. The resurrection means that all power belongs to God, even power over death itself. We live in a world of death, do we not? Just this morning, checking the news, there was a bombing in Egypt on Palm Sunday. And last night, I think it was 30 plus Christians are dead. This morning, early this morning, while you and I were still sleeping, But the resurrection of Jesus means that death doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't have, death is the the most final thing that anybody in our world can think of because I don't know if you know this, people don't just get back up after they're dead. But the resurrection of Jesus shows us that death doesn't get the last word. In this world, God's new life, his new creation is breaking in. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of that new life. The resurrection of Jesus means that we have access to true power. We have access to resurrection power. Think about this. The apostle Paul says to the Corinthians that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you. If you are a Christian, you have the exact same Holy Spirit, the spirit of power that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you think that would affect how you live your life if you really believe that? The next time you're feeling powerless, the next time you're feeling in a power conflict, in a power struggle, do you reach for power the way the world reaches for power? Or do you remember that you have the spirit of God alive within you? Which is the third thing I'll say is that the resurrection means we're now free to use our power for the flourishing of others. We're free. We're free. We have access to this resurrection power. We don't need to grasp for it on our own. We can trust that we are held by the one who has ultimate power. And we're free to use that power to build others up. I'm going to read, there's a, an author named Andy Crouch who wrote a book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. I'll, I'll link to this one as well on the website. Really helpful book. I, I quoted from him a few weeks ago talking about leadership and authority. And I'll quote from him at length here at the end because I think he just puts it so well about the way that the resurrection changes our relationship to power. Here's what he says. Here is what we need to discover about power. It is both better and worse than we could imagine. Power at its best is a source of refreshment, laughter, joy, and life, and more power. Remove power and you cut off life, the possibility of creating something new and better in this rich and recalcitrant world. Life is power, power is life, and flourishing power leads to flourishing life. Of course, like life itself, power is nothing, worse than nothing without love. But love without power is less than it was meant to be. Love without the capacity to make something of the world, without the ability to respond to and make room for the beloved's flourishing is frustrated love. Love without power is frustrated love. That is why The love that is the heartbeat of the Christian story, the Father's love for the Son and through the Son for the world is not simply a sentimental feeling or a distant ethereal theological truth, but has been signed and sealed 
by the most audacious act of true power in the history of the world, the resurrection of the Son from the dead. Power at its best is resurrection to full life, to full humanity. I don't know everybody in this room, some of you today, maybe, maybe what God's calling you to do is to take that very first step of faith to say, God, I have used power for my own self-interest and I want to bow my knee before you and, and give you power over my life. Some of you have never made that choice. You've never taken that step to follow Jesus, to trust in him. And today there's a wide open invitation. Others of you, as I've been speaking, you've been thinking about certain relationships or, or areas in your life where you've used power to harm others instead of to build them up. And maybe God's even calling you to go meet with them and to be reconciled. Whatever it may be, I want to invite you to be obedient to what God calls you to do. Let me pray for us. God, I ask right now that you would even just like stir in our hearts. God, some of us, um, we, we haven't realized that we have power. You're calling us to use it, to engage it for your glory and for the good of others. God, others of us right now, we're experiencing conviction, ways that we need to use that God-given power that you've shared with us to, to build others up. God, for some, maybe it's just that first step of faith. Just a simple prayer. God, I want to give my life to you. I want you to have power over my life as the one who can save me, who can redeem me, who can change me. God, wherever we are today, I ask that you would fill us with your power to respond to you as you call us. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. I want to invite us to a time of response now. We're going to respond first to the giving of our tithes and offerings. Volunteers will begin collecting the offering. And let me just say this to you. Um, our resources, our financial resources, that's one of the ways that we wield power, is it not? Money is power, all those sorts of things. So I just invite you today, if you're a guest or a visitor, there's no obligation to give. We don't want the, that you to feel pressured. But, but I do want to invite you to give as an act of worship and to give as a way of saying that I want to use these resources that God's given, these, this, this powerful resource, uh, so the gospel can go out through Sound City, through other ministries that we partner with and support. We invite our younger students class to join us in. Let me read some discussion questions briefly to help us as we uh, talk in, in our community groups, our homes this week. Think about your life and the areas that God has given you power. Write these areas down, reflect on them, and then share them with your group. I invite you to write them down because I just think it's worth meditating on for a season. I think we forget how much power we actually have. Number two, what are the differences between a godly use of power and a worldly use of power? And where, where are ways that you just, you're, you're using your power like the world does and God's inviting you to repent? How is the resurrection the ultimate display of God's power? And how does the resurrection change our relationship to power? And a couple things to pray about. Pray that God would fill us with his resurrection power and he would remove that, that worldly ambition from our hearts. And then pray that God would show his power right, by redeeming people who don't yet know him. Only God can change a human heart. Amen? There's no amount of words that you or I can say. It's, it's a miracle of God to transform a human heart. So when we see someone receive his grace, that is a tremendous act of God's power, is it not? So pray that he would do that. In a moment, they're going to begin passing out the elements for communion. And I'll call your attention to 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare our hearts to receive from the table. It says that 
the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new agreement, the new way that we're going to relate to one another. It's written in his blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, today, as you, as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, I want you to think of the power that is present in the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. Even right now, as we, we eat of this, this, this simple bread, this simple cup, there's power in this, in this action. There's power in this activity. But there's also an invitation to reflect. As often as you do this, it says, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Before you, before you do, we're gonna just pause. We're gonna hold for a moment. Our musicians will just kind of play instrumentally and give you a minute to just think and reflect. God, how have I used power wrongly? Where do I need to ask for forgiveness? Where do I need to experience your transforming power in my life? I'm gonna pray again and then I'll invite you to, as you're ready, Eat of the bread, drink of the cup, and then you can stand to your feet when you're ready and and sing with us as we worship our King. Jesus, we thank you that you used your power to redeem us. You used your power for our flourishing. I ask and I pray right now, God, as we respond to you, that you would help us to respond with a heart of gratitude and God, that as we sing, as we, as we join with the crowds on Palm Sunday from 2,000 years ago, that we would shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God, help us to sing and, and worship and celebrate you with great joy and with great gratitude. I ask and pray that you would send your spirit to be present with us now, and that we'd worship you in sincerity. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen.